Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, says the Apostle Peter in the second chapter of Acts, the 22nd and 23rd verse. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Would you all do a favor with me? All right. Take your hands, put them up like this. Okay, put your hands like this, okay, like Barney Fife's coming at you, all right? Okay, now take your fingers, go like this, all right, very good, okay? Now take one hand, go like that, okay? Take this one, go like that, okay? Push this one down, push this down, okay, now grab a Bible. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages of Scripture this morning, and if you would, I'd love for you, I mean, you can use your device if you need to do that, okay? But I'd love for you to actually physically turn in the pages with me. I'm even using the Pew Bible this morning, just in case, you know, we need page numbers or whatever. But I want to look at some amazing scriptures with you this morning, as uh, Dad asked me to kind of talk about why uh, this focus on Genesis as of late. Uh, with uh, your Bible school curriculum and all that kind of stuff. And so we're going to do that. And to start with, would you please turn to Matthew chapter 19. And as you are doing so, let me say thank you on behalf of my family for your support. You are one of our supporting churches for our family and the ministry we get to do with Creation Truth Foundation. And uh, it, it is just a tremendous blessing to have... Um, not just support from churches, but especially uh, this congregation, because this is one of my home congregations I always think of, and one of my church families uh, that's out there, because uh, you've been around most of my life, and especially all of Jamie's life, and so uh, uh, we greatly appreciate you. We've been to 22 events already this year, uh, just, just me that and my family we've been to, not to mention all the rest that the ministry's been doing. Um, there's really not an open week on the calendar for the ministry this year. 22 events that I've been at in nine different states, 21,998 miles. How far is it from the house? <laughs> Maybe point, okay, I'm just like, I'm two miles from 22,000 miles already. So, and uh, 5,556 in attendance at these events. And uh, in the events we've been to, we've witnessed 14 baptisms. So, Thank you for making it possible for us to be able to go and do that. Revelation 13, 8 says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. And in that Acts message where Peter is preaching, he says that Jesus went to the cross by the set plan of God that was established before the world was even created. There's some amazing foundations laid forth here for us to understand the importance of the scriptures with specific emphasis that you all have been doing in Genesis. Even Jesus does that as the foundation for what he teaches. In Matthew chapter 19, which I need to turn to as well, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus in verse 3 is asked a legal question about marriage. 
That never happens in society, does it? The legalities of marriage and what it is. Where does Jesus go for his foundation to explain and define marriage? Look at what he says in verse 4. Haven't you read? <laughs> Where? In the beginning, in the scriptures, he replied, that at the beginning, at the very beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let no one mess this up. Where does Jesus go to for his foundation here? If you notice, either in, in your Bible, you'll either see some all capitalized words there, or you will see some little quotation marks, single quotes around certain parts of that. That's because Jesus is quoting Scripture. Specifically, Genesis 1.27 is the first one where he says he made them male and female. And then where it says where the, 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 father, uh, where the son will leave his father and mother to be united, he's quoting Genesis 2.24. And where does he say this all started? In the... Is there a verse of scripture that starts in the beginning? Yes, where is it? Yes, in the beginning. You're right. <laughs> Genesis 1, 1, the first verse of the first chapter of the first book. This is where Jesus goes to. And notice how Jesus understands that text. We're going to be going to Genesis chapter 2, so you can go ahead and flip over there. But as you're doing so, I want you to understand that Jesus understands this text as real history. This isn't some poetic thing, some hyperbole, some nice little fanciful, you know, fairy tale, Bible story. Jesus treats this as real history. And when does he say God made the first man and woman in history? When does he say he did it? In the beginning. Now you understand automatically then the diametrically opposite view Jesus has, Jesus has, compared to what is commonly taught in the world today. Since about the mid-late 1800s. Became predominant in the mid-1900s. The current theories today, and they're actually just models, they're not even scientific theories when you look into the technicalities of it, um, is that there's an the idea that's taught that our universe has been around for 13.8 billion years. You want to get into the technicalities like 13.77 plus or minus 23, okay, whatever. 13.8 billion years. In that scheme, when does humanity show up? Fully formed, fully evolved, homo sapien. Around 200,000 years ago, if you give it the ultimate biggest stretch, you might get to 350,000 years ago. Now then, if you have this 13.8 billion year history and man shows up 350,000 years ago, that means man has been around for the last 0.003% of history. Would that be at the beginning? No. So was Jesus just a lunatic? 
because that's what's being taught. He was just some crazy guy who has sometimes had some good morals to teach, but he had no clue what was going on. Really? Humanity born at the beginning of history? No, they came at the very end of history so far. You see what we're dealing with here. So what is it then that we need to learn from all of this? The scriptures are unequivocal in their consistency regarding this. You can read how Adam and Eve were the first people at the beginning throughout all of Scripture. You can find it in Luke 3.38, Romans 5.14, 1 Corinthians 15.45, 1 Timothy 2.13, Jude 1.14. It just keeps going on. So let's see what happens here. Because if this is the foundation, not for Jesus regarding all of his teaching on marriage, I have a feeling it's the foundation for so much more. Genesis chapter 2, if you would. Chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. We're on the sixth day of history. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But, verse 17, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. What is this all about? This is an incredible testimony as to the whole purpose of why this cosmos even exists. He didn't create for himself a nice little farm ertle toy set. I used to get that every year for Christmas. I got pieces that went to my big farm Ertl set, okay, that to keep putting in all the pieces, and it kept growing and growing and growing. And every year, thanks to Uncle Jim and Aunt Sue and Uncle Danny, Aunt Dina and Mom and Dad and Grandma, Grandpa Cox, it just kept growing and growing and growing until it took up half the basement, okay? And we had this little train set that went on it and all these little pieces and everything. And I had, it would take literally, if it was all torn down and I went to set it all back up, it would take three months to get it all set up. I kid you not, especially if the basement flooded. Then we really had a problem, okay? I mean, we, we, we had all kinds. And so, yeah, you put all your little pieces in the row and everything, even the little piglets, you know, you have to line up with the mama pig and everything. I mean, it's like, it took forever. What's going on here is Jesus, God is establishing that's not what this is. He tells Adam, look at this. You get to eat from every tree in the whole world, except one. One tree I want to just set as distinguished. In fact, we find out in chapter 3, it's right smack in the middle of the garden. That don't eat that one. You have a choice to eat from all other trees and not this one. Or, if you want to say that you really don't like me, that you don't care about your creator, your father, the one who made you, if you want to reject the love, the relationship I'm offering you, then you go eat that tree. You get to be a willing participant in this. I didn't just make you to move you around and make things look nice and everything. We get to have actual genuine relationship. That's why I made you, so you can experience the most incredible things beyond your wildest imagination. It's going to be phenomenal. 
And look at how easy it is. You literally can eat from every other tree in all the world. I mean, you have to go out of your way to make sure you want to violate this relationship that we're establishing. He made it extremely hard to mess this up. You have to willingly want to mess this up. Hmm. What's the consequence if they do? What's the penalty? Dying. In fact, in the Hebrew here, it's, it's actually even more specific. It says, dying you shall die. The day you eat of it, dying you will die. Now, wait a minute. What does that mean was the condition before they ate? Was anything dying? No, nothing was dying. But in the day of you, when you eat this and you sin, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Now, we know that's spiritual and physical. We are separating our, ourselves from the author of life, Acts 3.15, from God, our creator, because of our sin. But we're also going to experience this physical death. That's what it says. That day you will begin the dying process and you will grow old and eventually die. How did God make everything before that? Look at chapter 1, verse 29. These are the very last words we have recorded from God of what he says on the final day of creation. He's going to take the seventh day and set it aside as a day of rest. But on this last day of creation, on day six, look at verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Then, after he says that, God saw all that he had made and it was what? Very good. See, several times throughout there, God said when he made something, it was good. Which, as we teach in VBS, means it was perfect complete nothing wrong with it it was absolutely perfect here in the hebrew when it says very good it is emphatic it literally means it cannot be any better it is the absolute possible best it can be would there be any death in that disease suffering cancers no it was perfect. What messed all that up? Sin. That tree, that blasted tree, that tree. Sin. Chapter 3, look at verse 17. They have eaten from the tree. They fell prey to the temptation and to the wisdom of Satan instead of the wisdom of God. And in verse 17... To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. What had happened? Who brought or allowed sin to enter the world? The man did. Throughout all the rest of history, throughout all the rest of Scripture, who gets the blame for sin entering the world? 
Is it Eve? No. It's who? Adam. Why? It said, back up there in verse 6, that he was there the whole time. What was his job? Yes. Adam was made first, and then Eve. The scriptures make that very clear. And it established that he was the head, the protector, the provider, the defender of his family. That is his job, his responsibility. And what does he do here? God calls him out on it there in verse 17. You totally abdicated your God-given responsibility. Whatever was going on in his mind, whatever his thought process was, he elevates Eve's desires, whatever she wanted, ahead of what God wants. What's the Bible call it? Anytime we put anything above God, idolatry. And thus sin entered the world. And they ate and violated the law, the command that God had given. What's the result? Cursed is the ground. The whole creation is now cursed. Because is sin good? Is it perfect? No, what does it lead to? Death, disease, pain, suffering. It's the, that is the, those are the direct results of sin. And so that's what takes place here. In fact, you learn it's going to be tough for him to live. It's going to be hard conditions eventually. Verse 19, by the sweat of your, bow, your brow, you're going to eat food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are. And now, because sin has entered the world, to dust you're going to return. Now there's going to be death, pain, suffering, diseases, mutations of bacteria and viruses that were good for us, that helped things function properly, but now, what happens when we have certain mutations of bacteria and viruses? It's not pleasant, is it? Romans 8.22 says that the whole creation now groans and is in pain and turmoil. Because are things good anymore? Are they perfect? No. That's why we need a Savior. Look at verse 16. I have to point this out there in, verse, in chapter 3. Because we need to understand how things, the way God made them, are good, are perfect. It's the sin that messes it up. Chapter 3, verse 16, when he speaks to Eve, here's what God said. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He'll rule over you. What specifically, look carefully there in your Bibles, what specifically does God curse? Where in that verse does the word curse appear? It doesn't. I missed that for years. Think about it. Having children, having a husband, having a father, 
to be the head of the home. Are those curses? What does the world in its satanic wisdom say about every one of those things, though? What's being pushed and taught in our culture today about every one of those things? Are they still good and perfect, though? The design that God is... here. What he's telling her is here, hey, there's nothing wrong with the way I designed it, the Lord says. What's wrong is there's sin in the world now. And these things aren't going to be so perfect anymore. There's going to be pain in childbearing, not just physical. Sometimes there's going to be some heartbreak. There's going to be some trauma that takes place. There's going to be some loss sometimes. Even in the family, there may be abuse. Does that mean the way God designed it? was flawed, that he didn't do a good job? And is it, no. All our sin messes up this world. And what he tells us here is though, but the more you try to do things the way he designed it, because he designed it how? Good, perfect. Guess how your life will be? Much better. It'll be so much better the more you try to live it in the way he outlined for us, the way he designed for us, because it was supposed to be so good, so perfect for us. As long as we followed in his steps and we walked with him in that relationship. So was there any hope then to fix all this? Go back up just another verse to verse 15. Here's what he said to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Some of your versions there may say between your seed and her seed. How many of you, that's what your, your translation is. Okay, that's, that's good. I remember though, when I step back here for a second, I think about it. When I was in biology class, as I recall... It was the male of the species that had the seed, not the female. Am I right? Okay. Yet what happens here in this prophecy? There's going to be someone who comes someday who's going to defeat the devil. He's going to be our savior, our rescuer, to help us overcome our sin problem and death problem. How will we know it's him when he arrives? He's going to be born of the woman. And her seed? Wait a minute, it's the male that has... So it's going to be just the one... There's not going to be a male involved when this Savior is born. How will we know when he arrives? He'll be born of the virgin. We'll find out 4,000 years later her name is Mary. And what is his name, the name of our Savior? Jesus. He was coming. But in the meantime, what are Adam and Eve supposed to do? They have this sin problem and this death problem that now exists in the world that wasn't there before. What happens? Well, as you go on and read, the Lord looks down upon them and he's like, well, that didn't work out. Okay, here we gone. Okay, Adam and Eve 2.0. Is that what he does? 
No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't just throw them away and start over. Why? <laughs> if you have something that's been handed down to you, precious heirloom, something that was a very special significance in your family, and it breaks, something happens to it, what do you do with it? What do you try to do? You try to fix it. You don't throw it away. To someone else, it's like, well, hey, at least it wasn't new, you know? I mean, just throw it. No. To you, it means everything. You do everything you can to fix it. What does God do here with Adam and Eve? Look at verse 21 of chapter 3 here. Verse 21, the Lord God may himself personally made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He covered them. Brother George Fall used to teach that the, the way the word covering reads there in the language means like from their neck to their ankles, they are fully covered. What's going on here? How does he go about covering them and why? From where does he get the coverings? Yes. Skin coverings. They had to come from what? Animals. What do we have recorded here in history? The first death. Why was it back there in chapter 1, God said everything, literally everything that's alive, eats only vegetation? Why? Because in order to have a steak, what do you got to do? You got to kill the calf. You got to butcher the, the, the bull. You got to do whatever it is. You got to get some beef. Something has to die. There was no... There, Wendy's, where's the beef? There was no... There were no Wendy's at that time. And you thought it was paradise. Okay, no. They could have had Frosties. It was still good. Okay. So... Carnivory, that's a lot of pain. That's a lot of suffering. That's a lot of bloodshed. That's a lot of death. God said, none of that. You can only eat vegetation. And after he said that, then he said, because there is no death, no pain, no suffering, it is not just good. It was what? Very good. It was the best. It can't get any better. Now what has just happened here? Something died. For the first time in history. And Adam and Eve are clothed with it. Why? When you are dead, what are you in desperate need of? Life. Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Adam and Eve, they're going to face physical death. They already have spiritual death here. They've begun the dying process physically, what do they desperately need? Life. Now, can it be a life that has sin? No, because what would be true of that life? It too is dead. They need an innocent life. In their day, right there before them, what is the only innocent living creatures that's available to them? An animal life. Can an animal sin? No. It was innocent. 
So God is teaching them here an innocent life has to be given so that that innocence can be transferred to you. Your sin problem can be taken away so that you can be covered with its life so your death problem can be fixed. Hmm. That becomes the common practice then. You see their son Abel does it faithfully. You'll find out Job does it. Abraham does it. Noah does it. Moses does it. It goes on and on. He then establishes in the law, Leviticus 17, 11. I've given you the blood on the altar because it's the life that's in the blood that makes atonement. Guess what the word atonement means? To be covered. Problem. Turn to your New Testament now, Hebrews chapter 10. You get to the book of Hebrews... And the author here is talking about how things used to be in the old covenant under the law. And in verse 4, by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, pins these words, chapter 10, verse 4, and says, well, um, <clears throat> you know, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to uh, um, uh, take away sins. Excuse me? What, what, what was that? Uh, it's impossible for the blood of animals to take away your sins. If I'm, one of the, if I'm a former Jew here reading this, I'm thinking, um, then what have we been doing for the last 4,000 years? Why can the blood of an animal not take away our sin and grant us eternal life? Back in chapter 1 of Genesis, you don't have to turn back there, but on that sixth day of history, God on the fifth day had made winged creatures and water creatures, and on day number six, he makes all the land-dwelling creatures, and then says it is Good, which means it was perfect, and there was nothing, and it was complete. He's done, he's finished. He's never going to make another animal ever again. Then he says, now, let's make man in our image, completely separate from the animal kingdom. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, it says. Why can the, why can the blood of animals not take away our sin and death problem? Because we're not animals. We're image bearers of the creator himself, com created completely separate from the animal kingdom. I personally, uh, Hebrews 10.4 I think is the greatest refutation of the whole idea of human evolution. Absolutely demolishes the slightest possibility of it. We are not descended from them. We are his image bearers. So here's what he goes on to say. Look down at verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Who was that? Jesus Christ, it said there in verse 10. His, his sacrifice, his, he's an image bearer who, did he have any sin? No, he lived the perfect, innocent life. He gives it for us then, 
And it says for one for all time. It goes back and it takes care of the sin and death problem for all of those who had been faithful in their sacrifices. And for all those in the future who will be covered by his blood. Well, how in the world do we get in on that? Don't you want in on that? Have your sin and death problem taken away? Go to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus into heaven itself, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. When he's talking about sprinkling, the high priest, when he sprinkled the blood, our hearts sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. When and how does that take place? He finishes by saying, having our bodies washed with pure water. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 27. Page 1153 in the Pew Bible. This verse, I think, is monumental in the affairs of mankind and all of human history. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were immersed, baptized, that's what baptized literally means, immersed, fully submerged into Christ, have now what? Clothed yourselves with Jesus, with Christ. And now look at what happens. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your level of income. It doesn't matter your gender when you are clothed with Christ your identity is your Jesus's you belong to him and your sin problem and death problem are now conquered and you can enter into as we just read in Hebrews that most holy place, the very presence of our creator God once again. That was available back in the garden. It said they walked daily with him. Guess what we can do when we are fully clothed and covered in the life of Jesus? It's not just going to be good. It's going to be how? Very good. It literally won't be able to be any better. That offer to be buried with him, as Romans 6 says, into his death and raised to walk in newness of life. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 3, baptism now saves you. Black and white says it. He says it's not because you're taking a bath, but it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive or dead. Alive. Because of that historical fact, a living Savior can save us. Will you let him? That's the offer today. The invitation is always available.
And the Savior is waiting to welcome you in. And if you are clothed in that, you get to walk daily with him. Peter goes on to finish that sermon in Acts chapter 2 by saying, everyone needs to repent and be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Actually, literally says into the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift is your sin and death problem taken away and he lives in you. You get to walk daily with him once again. Are you walking daily with him? If so, who have you shared that good news with?